I'm Toby Kincaid. Let's be honest. Big oil runs the world. Our industrial civilization is unsustainable. Now, that's not a very scary word, is it? Unsustainable. I mean, it has sustainable in it. Well, it's a very scary word because in the same way, if you climb a tall building and jump off the roof, um, your situation is unsustainable. So, you know, it's not the fall that gets you. It's the sudden change of direction. You know, and the same is true of our modern industrial civilization. We are poised to tip over the basic cycles that give us nutrition and oxygen and the detoxification that the earth is struggling to keep up with. We've been overloading our dear earth from the oceans to the airs to the soils with such a degree of toxicity that with uh, just a bit more, I'm afraid we're going to tip. And this is something that we must avoid, of course. And it, it, in fact, it's an old story. And, you know, civilizations have been facing this again and again. And in the previous episode, we mentioned the ancient Greeks. You know, by the 5th century B.C., uh, everything is deforested, denuded. You know, people needed wood. So what did the Greeks do? Well, the ancient Greeks were very familiar with natural cycles. They were very intimate with the sun. For many thousands of years before, they used the basic uh, gnomon, which is basically a stick in the ground. And because of the shadow, the change of shadow, the length of shadow, they could tell the hour, the, the day, the season. They were quite uh, sophisticated. You know, uh, Socrates was spoke a, a lot about the different architectures that provided the, sa the salvation for the failing Greek economies. You know, they were out of wood, which meant you had to find a foreign source. Well, to find a foreign source, you had to have a military. And to have a military, you had to have triremes. You know, you had to have these wonderful uh, battle vessels, of course, made of wood. So the ancient Greeks really had to become empire to feed this growing furnace, this demand, not only for heat, as we think of burning fuels, and to make charcoal, but more importantly, to forge bronze. You know, this is back in the, the Tunic Wars, you know, we're back in the, in the, the Bronze Age, and you, need, you smelt a lot of copper and, and some tin. You know, and you had to go far-flung places to get the tin. I mean, it's not particularly uh, abundant in the Middle East. So, um, you know, tin was taken from the Great Lake regions, and I mean thousands and thousands of tons of tin were mined there uh, to really, to unknown peoples, probably in the Bronze Age. Probably thousands of years B.C., um, there's sufficient evidence, I believe, to, that all this tin had to be removed from by someone. And who would want tin? Well, people in the Bronze Age. But the Greeks, they had this crisis. So to deal with it, they turned to what they knew, which was the sun. And, uh, you know, if you have a second stories, you know, Socrates would say, you know, to... to, 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 to uh, to not block the winter sun and so forth, you know, to, to obtain this result, the section of the house facing south must be built lower than the northern section in order not to cut off the winter sun. So, you know, they were quite, you know, quite advanced in having these porticos, which are, you know, kind of covered porches. 
And the eaves would allow great shading when the sun was high in the summer, but when it arced low, would allow the sun to beam in and heat up the adobe and the stone walls in their, in their wonderfully laid out homes that took full advantage. Now, this was a savior. And the Greeks, you know, were, were big on citizens' rights. The first uh, sun rights were instituted in early Greek, uh, Greek cities. And, and the way they planned the city, you know, everything was orthogonal. It had kind of the east, west, and north, south streets. And this was a tremendous innovation because it allowed solar access to all of the, uh, all of the uh, edifices. So what did the Greeks do, the ancient Greeks, to get out of their energy crisis? Well, they turned to the sun. The sun is the power supply of all life on Earth. It is a formidable power. And uh, as you know, being if you are stranded in a desert, you very quickly know the power of the sun. You know, even the amount that strikes your body, that small cross-section, uh, is amazingly powerful. So the ancient Greeks turned to the sun. In fact, they were so proud of it. You know, there was... Um, uh, the ancient playwrights, uh, you know, when he was talking about the primitives and, and the barbarians, uh, uh, Aethelius. And Aethelius, he, he wrote this, these poems, and, um, you know, when talking about the primitives, he would say, you know, though they had eyes to see, they saw to no avail. They had ears, but understood not. But like shapes in dreams throughout their time without purpose, they wrought all things in confusion. They lacked knowledge of houses, turned to face the sun, dwelling beneath the ground like swarming ants in sunless caves. Hmm. Okay. So Athelus is saying, you know, to, to be civilized, to be modern, is to be in harmony with Earth's natural cycles, to use the sun. So this was a tremendous advantage for the ancient Greeks, and indeed their civilization thrived for centuries, despite all of the hardships that the, the constant quest for energy, the constant quest for wood, was causing uh, tremendous military demands. And these military demands uh, became an endless cycle. But they were able to survive for a long time because of their love of solar energy, their use of it, their command of it. You know, so this is a great lesson for us. You know, we, we spoke last episode about the Romans. You know, when the Romans came into it, they faced the same problem, but their problem was many times amplified. You know, the, the ancient Greeks were in the Bronze Age, so they were, of course, smelting bronze. But the, the Romans were smelting iron. It was now the Iron Age. And that took an exponentially larger amount of wood because to smelt iron, you need much higher temperatures. Much higher temperatures consume fuel much more rapidly. And this, again, fueled this positive feedback that ultimately led to their demise. So an energy crisis is no small matter. And uh, we're now in the modern age and we're facing our crisis, as, as we've been speaking about. So... It's kind of interesting, though, you know, if we look back in history, there are just uh, so many examples of, of lessons that could have been learned. You know, so how can we learn from history? I mean, uh, take the quote from The Little Prince. You know, it happens then, as it does to doctors in the treatment of consumption, which in the commencement is easy to cure and difficult to understand. 
but when it has neither been discovered in time nor treated upon a proper principle, it becomes easy to understand and difficult to cure. The same thing happens in state affairs. By foreseeing them at a distance, which is only done by men of talents, the evils which might arise from them are soon cured. But when, from want of foresight, they are suffered to increase to such a height that they are perceptible to everyone, there is no longer any remedy. You know, this is Machiavelli in 1513. So, you know, what he's talking about applies today because, you know, if, if, you, if you let a problem and you see a problem, if you see a problem immediately, if you act on it, um, you may not understand everything, but you can cure it. But, you know, as he says, if you wait too long, then uh, you may understand it very well, but a cure is, is now very difficult. And, of course, his main point is, is once a problem grows to such an extent that it's obvious to everyone then there's no longer any remedy. You know, these are very scary words uh, and a tremendous insight into human nature and how we can act and how we can uh, affect this tremendous threshold we find ourselves uh, now at the precipice. If we continue in a business-as-usual world, uh, we're going to have economic and social and political stresses that are going to just rip everyone apart. I mean, the, the whole power structure, uh, the root of our tree, our economic tree, as we mentioned earlier, uh, is energy. Just as the ancient Greeks found out, and then the Romans. And all of these empires have ultimately failed. And so, what we're, we're seeing here is this, this historical trend. You know, after we became agrarian you know, 10,000 years ago, when we started to do that... Um, then there are groups of, of men who realized, hey, instead of doing all the hard work of, you know, sowing the field and, and growing the crops and weeding them and then harvesting, why don't we just sit around and, and sharpen some sticks, wait till they do all that and bring all of the harvest in, and then we'll just, you know, get together and go take it. That's That's a lot better than doing all that work. So... Unfortunately, when we became civilized, we also, you know, found the two motivations for war. You know, passion or gain. Well, historically speaking, most of the time it's gain. And uh, sometimes, you know, cloaked in the, uh, in the uh, veneer of passion. But, uh, you know, war for gain is an old story, an old business. You know, so once men figured out how to go get something, then uh, social organizations began to develop. I mean, uh, uh, the rise of empire uh, began and uh, eventually turned into, you know, pharaohs and uh, emperors and uh, kings and then eventually dukedoms. And they all kind of duked it out, didn't they? You know, if you look at European history just in the last 500 years, you know, you had all these little, small, little city-states kind of battling it out under rough ethnicity. But, um, you know, even sub-ethnicity people kind of, you know, hated each other for whatever reason. But there's always been a rub, and uh, people have been, you know, intense about it. So, you know, for the last uh, 3,000 years, 
um, energy is, is very much tied to how civilization uh, can function. So we've seen this evolution. You know, we mentioned the pharaohs and the emperors and the kings and then these little city-states. And then eventually we kind of organized into what we called uh, countries. And this is a fairly modern kind of idea. But the role of empire still was strong and very present. I mean, look at uh, European and American history and Asian history, if you like, for, for everyone over the last five centuries. Well... As we saw in Big Oil versus the Electric Car, something happened in the last century, just at the dawn of the 20th century, when we had this big shakeout between fossil fuels, biofuels, and electricity. And as far as big manufacturing machines and as far as transportation, um, John D. Rockefeller, and especially with the death of diesel, as we saw, and the rise of Tesla, um, took over. And by World War I, we see empire now evolving into a new form. Before World War I, it was forming in the robber baron ages of these kind of mega corporations beginning, but it was World War I that really galvanized the petroleum industry that wiped out the biofuel and the solar transportation industries at the time because of military necessity and the tremendous advantage of having so much energy in a small space like a barrel of oil. So once empire turned into megacorporations, you know, really since World War One, many of these large corporations, which are chemical companies, fertilizer companies, petroleum companies, these all have a basic theme, but they're so large and so important and so necessary that they've actually outgrown countries. I mean, uh, which is larger? You know, ExxonMobil? Or Portugal? Well, ExxonMobil is. You know, so which is bigger? You know, BP or Brazil? Well, BP. So when you look at uh, GDP, you know, gross domestic product, uh, these mega corporations are moving huge amounts of money, huge amounts of chemicals, and the toxicity of these empires that have run amok um, have turned what was normally kind of an interaction between humans and groups of humans. That's all turned around now. It's, it's you as a, a, an individual human being. You've now been classified a consumer and you are a market. And in fact, you are a plethora of markets. Uh, look at the rise of the factory food. And eating that, of course, makes you sick, so they can sell now drugs. I mean, the commodity-based model, the idea of just producing something to be consumed, has kind of run wild. And uh, this toxicity, this uh, terrible price that we're heaving on our children and their children, if we get that far, uh, is insurmountable. You know, let's face it, our civilization based on fossil fuels, is unsustainable.